and thank you for joining me for another episode. My name is Stefan Van Norden, and this is Nature Revisited. In Doug Tolmey's latest book, Nature's Best Hope, Doug encourages all of us to start creating our own homegrown national park, to change the way we landscape and garden, to use more native plants, to think of other species that share our space, and to envision our properties as places where nature and wonder can thrive. That by doing so, we start addressing the challenges that we face, that we are nature's best hope. I have often wondered, who are some of the folks that have been inspired by Doug's book and have started to try and make a difference by creating their own homegrown national park? While browsing my Instagram, I came across a couple who has been doing just that, James and Taylor Davis. Their Instagram tags said Square Foot Prairie and Homegrown National Park. So I contacted James and Taylor to see if they would share with us their journey, the joys and rewards, as well as the difficulties of building their own homegrown national park. Here then are the Davises talking from their home in New Hampshire, sharing their story. We thought it would be fun to start by talking a little bit about how we got interested in gardening in the first place. I don't think it's something that it's not something that was really even on my radar much as a kid. I think mm. my mom planted impatience every yeah. <laughs> spring and that was about it. So let's talk a little bit about kind of where our interest came from and how it started. Yeah, I've had certainly an up and down relationship with nature over the years. I certainly, like many people of our generation, spent a lot of time playing in the woods and nature was this thing that was around me very frequently back then. So I don't know that I was necessarily really appreciating it consciously, but certainly it was such a big part of my childhood that I think it laid a foundation for me connecting more with nature as I grew older. We lived in nature together. I did serve as a naturalist at the summer camp where we grew up. I would say even still, we kind of set it down for a while until we became homeowners in the mid-2000s. And I remember the real transformative moment for me was going out to our patio in the backyard and seeing one little volunteer cherry tomato plant growing up next to this old gas grill that, that was installed there. And I remember looking at it and at the time, like, you know, I was not a garden person. Yeah. You know, I but there was something that felt special about that. Like this plant had shown up and was producing this food for us to eat. And so I plucked a tomato off the plant and I put it in my mouth, discovered that I actually probably didn't know what tomatoes had tasted like before then. I think our first connection with gardening really came around in the vegetable gardening variety. Yeah. And actually that just you talking about that just made me think about the first time that I felt maybe that I even thought intentionally about gardening and that I felt a little bit excited about it was when we were at that summer camp where we grew up going as campers and we met there and then we worked there one summer 
when we were directors there, we were there before anybody else. One of the people who lived on site, who worked there year round, took us to her CSA garden. That's right. Yeah, that she was a member of in the community where the camp was located. And she gave us a tour. We got to meet the people who worked there. And we brought home her weekly share. And we cooked a meal with it. We made a salad, I think. And at the same time, this woman was also cultivating a small vegetable garden on the on the site of the summer camp. And she was kind of pulling all of us into that. And for me, that was a really cool moment to see this garden where all of these vegetables grew, to take them home, to turn them into food for us. And I hadn't had that experience in my life. I hadn't seen that in real life. Nobody in my family, at least during my lifetime, had really grown food. So that was a really cool moment for me to be like, oh, this is where our food comes from. You can grow your own food. And I think that's where it was first sparked too. And I think right around that same time period, I was getting out into the woods. I think they had retasked me with reclaiming these old trails that had gone through around the 400 acre property. As I was going through, I was getting more interested in figuring out what was growing there. I don't know that I was really thinking in terms of this is a native plant, but I remember having my curiosity sparked, especially because this was one of the forests in New Jersey that still had a decent amount of old growth on it. In particular, there was this a couple hundred year old black oak that was out in the forest and being so in awe of the size. It took three of us to wrap our arms around it. I remember going to the director of the camp who had been the naturalist at one point and, and asking him what it was. And he came out and he said, oh yeah, that's a black oak. I said, well, how do you know? Showing me the difference between the leaves, between that and the red oaks that we had and the white oaks, of course. And I started losing my sort of plant blindness, I guess, for lack of a better term. You know, I started really seeing the plants that were out there. And again, I didn't really launch right into a connection about the greater important of this right away. Certainly that was sort of laying the foundation for, yeah, this greater connection with not only where our food comes from, but the plants that are around us and their importance. So let's jump into where we live now and kind of what we're up to. We are doing an Instagram page called Square Foot Prairie, where we're talking about our transition between having kind of a typical suburban property to transitioning more of it to just a more useful plot of land, right? So both for us in terms of growing our own food, but also in terms of native flora and fauna. And we live in a small town in New Hampshire. Uh, we live on just under a quarter of an acre. And I'd say it's a pretty typical suburb in terms of how many folks are around. When we inherited the property, there was some gardening going on. I would say most of it was typical spiria, Japanese spiria, and euonymus, and bishop seal, and a bunch of just plants that you'll see in gardening centers all over the place. Hydrangeas, hostas, pleasing looking plants in many cases, but not necessarily things that are feeding local wildlife or insects and that kind of thing. Well, we have three young kids, we should say, and we're trying to raise them uh, before we try to figure out how to raise all these plants. Yeah, we didn't do too much in the way of gardening for the first few years we were in this house. We've been in this house for almost six years. I think we have planted like a few vegetable plants every year. So we had this one area in our backyard that was kind of this tiny little patio that had a lot of pokeweed and uh, barberry plants. And it was just like a total mess of brambles and all these other things. And we tried to convert that area into a nicer looking patio. And when we did, we realized we had a blank slate to start with. So a friend of mine, uh, Jeremy, came up and helped us pick out plants and install plants for that. And I think that was really 
in terms of the recent past, Mm -hmm. what launched us back into being super interested into that, right? Like, and some of it was by accident. Like he picked out some swamp milkweed plants that were not plants I was even familiar with at the time. And we started seeing monarchs in the backyard. Yeah. That started getting us really excited. Yeah. And that's been one of the things that I think has connected a lot for our kids. The Mm -hmm. more that we put out there and the more, the more butterflies that we attract, they really enjoy that time of the season when the butterflies are flying around and we can see them on the plants. As we've increased the native plant load on our property, we've been seeing more bumblebees and things like that. And I think we've actually seen fewer aggressive yeah. bees. Obviously, things like yellow jackets are native, but uh, we haven't really seen a, a heavy prevalence of those for whatever reason. So that moment when we first started seeing those monarchs come in, that was really eye-opening for me because it impressed upon me the power of this one small act. It wasn't a huge thing to buy three swamp milkweed plants from the local nursery and install them. But for those butterflies that laid their eggs on those plants and those caterpillars that nourished themselves on that foliage, it made a difference for them, right? And it was this very small thing. I think that's when I started thinking more along the lines of, okay, we have all this land here. Yeah, it's only a quarter of an acre and it's not that much, but there is this opportunity for sort of a higher use than what our lawn is currently being used for. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things that I've been thinking about lately is I often have this thought when when we're getting really excited about growing food and growing plants and, gosh, we should just move somewhere with more land. Yeah, we could do that. But then I remember that there's a lot of reasons we love our home and where we live. And I kind of come back to like, well, we have this quarter of an acre, like let it, let's just use it for everything that it will give us. And that actually in some ways feels like a really neat and a really fun challenge. Like our little vegetable raised beds are right outside our kitchen. And I was talking about how I would love to grow even more food and learn more about preserving the food and having it kind of sustain us through some of the cooler months as well. So it's actually kind of an exciting challenge, I think, to think about this like tiny little plot of land that we're responsible for. How can we really cultivate it and make the most out of it for ourselves? And also, like you said, for the pollinators and everybody else around. Yeah, I think there's a lot of really powerful opportunities there. I mean, one of the things that we've seen with our own kids is I would say one of our three sons is kind of into flowers and you know, nature for nature's sake, for lack of a better word, like we all enjoy hiking and doing mm-hmm. things like that. But the one who will sit and say, hey, what's the name of that flower? Uh, what, what kind of bees are those? What kind of butterfly is that? Even the other ones, they see that it's important to us. And I think people often think about in this day and age with, you know, increased opportunities for fun things to do on computers and inside in general, how do we continue to foster a connectedness with nature? And I think by modeling that ourselves, it makes yeah. a pretty big difference. The other day, our oldest, who's not really into flowers or anything, he asked me again, like, so why exactly do we like native plants rather than other plants? And, you know, I got to share with him, our little piece of property does make a difference. And I could point to the pearly everlasting out there that's a host plant for the painted lady butterflies or multiple different kinds of milkweeds we have for the monarch. Charismatic creatures as well. The St. John's wort we have that isn't necessarily the typical nursery garden plant, but that is an important pollination plant for a lot of native bees around here. They see it, and if it's right in their own backyard, then they will learn about it almost through osmosis. It's just like sending the message of like, where we are funneling our time and energy obviously Mm -hmm. is important to us. It's also easy to think it's like too small of a project to only try to work on a quarter of an acre. It takes a lot of time, and especially if you want to start with 
you know, a couple year old plants, it's expensive as well. So we've been doing other kind of cost cutting measures, like starting with plugs, hope to sow a wildflower little meadow area from seed this year as well, after being inspired by attending a field day at UNH. Dr. Kathy Neal out there was talking about optimal ways to create wildflower meadows out here. So not only is it a ton of opportunities to do it on, quote unquote, just a quarter of an acre, but you don't have to stop there. If should the day arrive where we finally, we feel like we're done with the yard, if we actually get to that point, there's still a ton of opportunity. Like just last year, I went over to the Chamber of Commerce here in Dover and I talked to the woman there and said, hey, you know, it looks like your gardens need work, no offense. I do a little bit of garden design myself, and if you'd be willing to pay for the plants, I would pick them out and put them in and maintain them for the first year. Now, downtown, there's a little garden there that's, you know, this triangle that's, you know, 17 feet on each side that's filled with mostly native plants, not all of them. The opportunities for other people to go plant native plants on other people's properties, I think a lot of people love the idea of creating ecologically beneficial areas. Yeah, and so I think to paint a picture too of kind of what we have going on on our property. You mentioned the wildflower garden. That's like in our, we have like a fenced in area of our backyard where a dog can run around, but we're planning that for that area. And Mm -hmm. then we talked about our vegetable beds and kind of the native plants around the patio. James has kind of chosen a couple other sections of the yard to kind of start some more native plant gardens. And one of them is out front, basically right next to the road. Yeah, Yeah, so that was an interesting area for you to kind of take take over and try Mm -hmm. to evolve and change into something better and it's kind of shady because there's that one tree there too so you had to think about kind of what types of plants would grow and thrive there yeah that area actually we started with uh with larger plants from the local nursery because that was one of the first areas we planted and it was difficult at first and this has been part of our transition process too Uh, i should say that not all of our property is strictly natives either you know as we were transitioning back into getting into gardening I wasn't necessarily feeling like totally motivated to only plant native plants, mm-hmm. right? So we have some hybrid tea roses. We certainly have a lot of native cultivar plants like coneflower of the Magnus variation. So that first area does have, it's a mix of the coneflower Magnus. It's uh, has some New England asters. Uh, that was our first area, yeah. And then from there, it's, you know, this ink blotter effect of... This year, this spring, you dug up an area there and Mm -hmm. put in a bunch of plugs. Yep, that was um, all natives. And those are all natives. So that one will be fun. I think as time goes on, it'll be years, I think, for it to really fill out. And it'll Mm -hmm. be fun to see how that grows. Yeah, I think we're picturing converting about 20% of the yard every year. I think that fits into our budget because it's a lot of work to turn lawn into natives unless you're just sowing seeds and hoping for the best. The front yard, yeah, I'd say it's probably a quarter of the way there. I think for this year anyway, I think we've been extra motivated I know that uh, Doug Tallamy has been on the show before. I did read Nature's Best Hope, and in that book, uh, Tallamy talks about, and I think he talked about it on the, this podcast as well uh, when I listened to his interview here, but he talks about the idea of this homegrown national park. And for some reason, that just really, that really clicked for me. And that was the moment where I felt really, you know, resolute in this idea that we could make a difference on our small piece of property. So uh, for those listening who perhaps haven't listened to that episode or unfamiliar with the idea. The idea is that the vast majority of land owned in the United States is owned by private landowners. While most of that land is driveways and lawns and little boxwoods and things that aren't really generating a lot of ecological value, there is this huge opportunity to take matters into our own hands. Because I think one of the beliefs that we hold is that 
the government probably is not going to be the organization that solves this problem of habitat loss, which is the biggest ecological crisis facing the world right now. It's actually the habitat loss for both native plants and native insects and all of these offerings that plants can give us uh, over time, you know, many of which are very likely to be undiscovered so far. So the idea that we can start on our little piece of property and not only convert it and have it be a nice little wildlife safe haven for us, but do things like restore the health of local seed banks. You know, one of the things we've seen even in just a couple years of doing this is I'll see little uh, swamp milkweed plants popping up in mm-hmm. our neighbor's yard. We have this dysentery eczemia that uh, has been spreading into shaded areas nearby as well. Just a common milkweed as well, another prolific cedar. When that's happening, I feel very heartened. And I think as we can kind of fill out the rest of our property with these native plants that are designed to thrive in this area, that we can kind of battle back against this large-scale attack that happened on the American ecosystem when you know highways were put in, developments were put in, and all of these basically foreign invasives and fast-germinating plants were allowed to take over. So yeah, I think Ptolemy's book was super inspirational in terms of the idea that we could do something. It was actually for the first, like many people think about habitat loss and all these other things, and it feels disempowering. You know, they're chopping down however many acres of the rainforest every year. But if I can restore a quarter of an acre, many people felt inspired to do the same. That would be, I don't want to be cynical about the power of a small gesture. Yeah. And I think that's one of the big things that inspired you and us to try to share what we're doing a little on a little bit of a wider scale, even just thinking about how having that CSA vegetable growing experience Mm -hmm. with the person at the summer camp shifted my thinking a little bit. I think that just sharing it helps other people. We would love for other people with relatively small amounts of land like us to see this and feel like, oh yeah, this is doable. There's things I can do right here on my property that I'm already responsible for that can make a difference. Exactly. One of the experiences I've had in doing this is when you look at a quarter of an acre, it feels like a small property, but once you start giving it more character, it actually feels a lot bigger. Mm-hmm. You know, you can kind of create these little, these you little know, zones. Yeah, these little <laughs> scenes that are happening, right? Like our patio area right now, uh, you can walk into it and you are in it. You know, mm-hmm. the plants surrounding it. You know, some native, some not, because like I said, that was an area we planted at sort of a different phase in our uh, vision for what we want our property to become. But you're in it, right? And then you go into the backyard, and I have this area with milkweed. Uh, scarlet bee balm and a giant blue hyssop and these other plants it's its own little scene and so over time I think our property just gains more character and becomes more interesting and kind of feels bigger I feel like right now we can give a tour of our property which I think it's nice to have areas for kids to play and really sprint and kick a ball around for sure but for the areas that weren't being used for that anyway, it felt like sort of an easy call. And that's one of the things when you're thinking about like what we're working with on our property that we're kind of lucky to have James's parents living next door to us. So we have a side yard that's kind of shared between our two houses. And we also kind of have the benefit of that space being open space for our kids to run and play. And I think what this has really caused us to do is to want to be more intentional about our land. I think many people buy a home or build a home, the landscape is just kind of context for it. You know, it's just there. Whatever was there, you kind of keep that and maybe you make a few modifications or you have one favorite plant you like to plant, you put some tulips in, then you move on. And I think for us, it's just asking ourselves a question when we see a portion of our land, what would be the best use for this space? But if your lawn is just this thing you mow once a week and otherwise like maybe you go out there 
every so often when you see a little flower peeking up that you don't recognize. Like there's big opportunity to get more joy from your lawn as well. We can spread that idea to even two or three families or a few hundred square foot here and there by people who see us on Instagram. Uh, That to me feels important because I I don't know that we're going to fully change the world or anything by what we're doing here. But the way these big movements happen over time is from one mouth to the other. Like when you said, when we went to the CSA, that inspired us and probably some other people to at least walk into the next town and say, hey, I wonder if there's CSA here. The power of the word of mouth, I think, has been impressed upon me in multiple different things I've done throughout life. So I just hope to be a part of that for this homegrown national park idea as well. I'm thinking about the garden I put in for my parents. Uh, When you walk by it, it doesn't look like an American shade garden. They're usually filled with hostas. Maybe they have a few bleeding hearts in there. They look tidy. And when you look at the garden that I put in for them, it doesn't, like, at least right now, it's, it's young too, but it's not like exactly popping with jaw-dropping color necessarily, right? But when you sit with it, it looks like a really interesting little nature scene, right? Like if you're actually there and you're like, oh, it's the maple-leaved alum root that has this incredible character in its foliage. The carex, the sedges that are put in that just kind of look grassy, right? Um, That's just how really nice areas in the woods look. It's like this one little oasis of native plants that looks like what you could find in the understory of a forest here many, many centuries ago. But there is a design element to it. You know, there's a little drifts of the calico asters and, you know, the early meadow rue and so on, and the foam flower. And so it does have a designed quality to it. If you sit and, you know, take a moment to try to appreciate it or lose that plant blindness, you will see a lot going on. But yeah, if you're just like driving by, you're going to wonder why are there all those unruly plants growing under that crabapple tree. As a homeowner, I think you do have to understand that, right? That when, when you're getting into this, it's not gonna look a lot like the gardens and better homes and gardens. I try to sit with the, the principles of garden design. I think you can get pretty darn close. I think you can do a pretty good approximation. So I th- hopefully that'll give you a pretty good idea of why we're doing what we're doing right now. You know, our hope as always is just to both share this experience with others and you know, connect with other people of a like mind because first of all, it's just super fun. Such a delight to get to know all these different plants. And I do really believe in the idea that you have to grow it to know it. You put a plant in the ground and see how it interacts with others and, you know, when it blooms and what shows up and lands on it. It's been this really fun journey. You know, I also, I I do get a kick out of when people look and we have these beautiful hybrid roses and people are like, what's that growing in between them? And I'll say, oh, that's common bone set. You know, it's a really important plant. So what the hell? We're just going to put it in and see what grows, you know? <laughs> or like we're digging up Canadian goldenrod from people's lawns that they want to get rid of and, you know, just sticking it in the back fence. Like, you don't have to know everything. You don't have to be a gardening expert or know as much as Doug Tallamy or anything like that. It really just starts with grabbing a few plants uh, that are native to your area, putting them in, and seeing how it sticks yeah and I think valuing like the process a lot just finding joy in that process for someone like myself who's kind of a perfectionist I'd be like what's wrong with this plant it's not doing well and I'll I'll feel really frustrated you know I'll want an answer right away whereas you can have more of a mindset of like kind of just creative problem solving and figuring out what's going on and understanding that not every plant is going to thrive or we're going to have to change the soil conditions or do something different and I think it's actually kind of like a good 
practice in mindfulness, just kind of staying in the moment and being comfortable with the process and just being open to learning as it comes, not feeling like you need to know everything. Yeah. Like one of my ideas I hold most strongly about gardening is that the brown thumb is a myth, that there is no such thing as having a green thumb. A lot of people get lucky because they pick the right plant for the right place and then it grows. I think that's actually what happened to me when I first started getting into gardening and it built my confidence. Uh, Since then, I've learned that a lot more of it is just about preparation, trying to figure out what plants actually will survive and thrive where you live. What kind of soil do you really have? You know, I got a soil test, multiple soil tests at the local cooperative extension, kind of letting nature do the rest, right? All these plants were doing great before we showed up. So it's really just about trying to get things back to the conditions that they were in before we arrived and letting the plants do the rest. I know one of the things uh, you were interested in was this question of how important beauty is in a native garden. I think for me, it actually is important. Our wildflower meadow area is going to look pretty messy, especially at first. But I think part of our hope too, especially in sharing this over on our Square Foot Prairie Instagram, is to sort of be an ambassador for the idea that native doesn't have to mean ugly. Yeah, and I think when you talk about beauty too, one of the things I've been thinking about is kind of like opening our minds to what could be beautiful and what is beautiful. And obviously like very cliche to say beauty is in the eye of the beholder, but different people will think different things are beautiful. I think a lot of like suburban American culture values highly like manicured gardens, you know, super neat, super tidy. And so I think that there's like a little bit of a paradigm shift that has happened for me too as far as what's beautiful um and I love your idea of we can take an approach to planting native plants that will be beautiful but it still won't ever look like this cookie cutter white picket fence image that we have of what a garden might be and that's actually been a really fun shift for me to be you know to go outside into everything that you've been working on and see how much beauty there really is. Like every plant that you put in is so different and so unique and has so much character. Mm. Like the joy of seeing the new things that are blooming every few days, that's really beautiful to me. And the less manicured nature of it, and if you knew me, you would know that this <laughs> this is a long process, actually really now appeals to me. But it's been a process for sure. So I think there's some value too in recognizing like different people's perceptions of beauty and also being willing to like create a little more space in our minds for what is beautiful. (laughs) There are plenty of natives that we're not going to fill our lawn with. And I think we're going to try to be somewhat intentional about designing it in a way that's attractive to others that makes people look at it and say, I want that. Like I know there's this attitude among some people that are going in the native direction like, almost it's defiant. I don't care what my neighbors think. I don't think for me that's the point of this. Like I'm not trying to prove a point to them. Uh, I would love to inspire them though. I would love for them to look and say, hey, what's that plant? Oh yeah, this is mountain mint. You can't find this at the local nursery, but I could save some seed for you, right? And I think that's the hope that I have for this project. I don't know. I, I think it can look as wild as you'd like it to, but I'm not giving up on beauty just yet either. episode with the Davises and that you will share Nature Revisited with friends, family, and colleagues. The music was by Scott Wigley. Nature Revisited is produced by Stefan Van Orden and Charles Gagan 
If you would like to support Nature Revisited or share your thoughts and comments, please visit NordenProductions.com. That's Norden, N-O-O-R-D-E-N, Productions.com. And I hope you will join me for our next episode. And until then, remember, we are nature.